This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Richard White, the Margaret Byrne Professor of History at Stanford University. Richard's body of work is large and varied and includes the middle ground, Indians, empires, and republics in the great... Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Richard White, the Margaret Byrne Professor of History at Stanford University. Richard's body of work is large and varied and includes the Middle Ground, Indians, Empires, and Republics in the Great Lakes region 1650 to 1815, and Railroaded, the Transcontinentals and the Making of Modern America. He is a former MacArthur Fellow and has been president of both the Organization of American Historians and the Western History Association. All this is to say that we're very excited to have him on the network today to talk about his new book, The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, 1865 to 1896, which is the latest edition in the long-running Oxford History of the United States series. Richard, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Steve. First, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Can you tell us about how you came to the field of history in the first place and maybe a bit about your intellectual background? Sure. I, I came to history um, not really by accident. I've been fascinated with uh, American history and actually world history since I was a child. I mean, part of the blame for my becoming a historian would probably have to go to the landmark book series, which um, people my age, people in their 60s, 70s, will remember as this childhood series of about 150, 200 pages a piece, which would take an American figure, an American event, and tell a pretty accessible story about it. And I became fascinated by these. I began to read them all the time. And that led to um, trips to used bookstores in New York City. We lived out in Long Island at the time. My father would allow me to, to buy any book I wanted as long as I read it. Um, so I always had this background interest in history, but I never thought about becoming a historian. Um, I became a history major in college quite literally because I ended up having more credits in history than anything else. And when I counted them, I realized um, that was the easiest route to go for a major. But I still wasn't ready to become a historian. Um, and the final step to becoming a historian was I was involved in fishing rights struggles in the Nisqually River in the um, late 1960s, early 1970s. And I stayed with the Nisqually, and the Nisqually had stories about treaty and about the treaty and the rights that were given them and about how the treaty came to be negotiated. And I was utterly fascinated. They were the most interesting people I had ever met in my life. And um, I decided because I liked the Pacific Northwest, I'd try to go to graduate school. So I went back to graduate school part-time, did a master's thesis on the Treaty of Medicine Creek, and began to investigate the Nisqually's claims. And that pretty much led me into the archives, and that led me to becoming a historian. So that's a long answer to how I became a historian. 
And how did you become involved in this project that we're going to talk about today in particular? Um, this one actually I've been approached before by David Kennedy, my colleague at Stanford, who had asked me to do this volume. And at the time I said, no, I had other things going on. Um, and then a variety of other things happened. The volume never really got finished by other authors. And David came back to me. And he came back to me at a time where I was taking care of my mother who had dementia. Um, and quite frankly, I needed the money. Um, she was running out of money. I needed board and care for her, which was expensive. So I um, took the project. And uh, as I did so, I might have done it for reasons that um, were outside of the scope of the book, but I became fascinated by the Gilded Age. I'd written about this period before, and I entered into it fully. So I might have done it initially for the money, which is perfectly fitting for the Gilded Age. It's a period where everybody did it for the money. Um, but I, I ended up doing it because of, of real interest and fascination. So before getting into the details of the book, I want to ask sort of an atypical question for the podcast, which is, where does one begin when given the task of writing a book of this scale and scope? What's the process like of writing a large scale kind of sweeping synthesis like this? Well, the first thing you realize, and it's not, it takes a while actually to realize it, <laughs> is that you started already. Before you've ever taken the project, um, you started thinking about this. I'd lectured about the late 19th century um, since I first became a college professor. So it was something I was familiar uh, with, and it's something I'd synthesized before. But part of the very good advice I got, I actually got it from David Kennedy, was he said, if you think you can simply go back to your lecture notes and use that as a framework for the book, you're right. And, and I, was, he, I was wrong. Um, so the first thing I did is began to take my old synthesis and see why it was inadequate, and then began to build a new one. Building a new one involved reading a lot. Um, there's been an awful lot of good new scholarship on the Gilded Age. I mean, the, this, this book owes its um, existence to the work of many, many scholars. And a lot of it has not gotten a great deal of attention, um, precisely because the Gilded Age has become, as I say in the book, flyover country. Its historians don't pay that much attention to it, though I'm hardly the first one to try to synthesize it. Um, and once I started reading that, I began to rethink the whole period. I began to rethink the period largely in terms of its parallels with today, because writing a book over a period of eight or nine years, the parallels just jumped out at you. I mean, this, this is a period of political fragmentation, immigration. Um, it's a period of economic turmoil, of growing inequality, as we'll probably talk about later. I can go on and on with the parallels. And that began to form another structure for the book. So all of these things came together, throwing out my, new, my old synthesis, trying to create a new one, um, reading an awful lot of the new scholarship, and then thinking about the period in terms of its parallels with the present. Going back and reading a lot of the new scholarship, did anything stand out or surprise you that in maybe something that you hadn't thought about in this period before, or did you come across anything that sort of reshaped the way that you viewed this period in particular? Yeah, the, the easy answer to that came to be with um, Reconstruction. A lot of the material in Reconstruction um, really was new to me, and it was very recent at the time I read it. The books were just coming out, Greg Downs' book, for example. But... 
I'd always had a hard time explaining, even giving a narrative of reconstruction and also giving a narrative of why it failed. I mean, I knew the broad outlines, but what Downs does is start looking at a basic element. He starts looking at um, where they put the Union Army and where the Union Army withdrew from. And as you go through Downs, you begin to realize that the ability of the federal government to um, pass constitutional amendments, to, to issue edicts, was pretty vast. There was a large amount of, of um, public power in, invested in the federal government, but their ability to execute it, to actually govern, was really quite limited. And once I saw that, I could begin to tell a different story about why this began to fail. I could begin to see that, in fact, we did have a powerful state, but the ability of the state to execute its legal powers simply was not there once you began to withdraw the army. So this became the kind of insight which I could begin to structure an account around, um, taking in many elements of the old account, but adding these new, these new things. The other one which didn't surprise me enough, but which I made a, a fundamental part of the book, is Elliot West's idea of the greater reconstruction, that it's impossible to understand what is happening in the Western United States separate from what's happening in the South. Well, let's start to get into some of the, the larger concepts in the book. And I want to start with what you point to as one of the motivating concepts of the period itself, which is that of the home. Can you tell us how people defined the home during this period and how and why it was such a powerful concept during Reconstruction and the Gilded Age? Sure. One of the things that um, startled me, made me feel like an idiot, was that the home was everywhere in the 19th century. I, I go back through it. I'd read it before. I was reading it now as I went through the sources, both primary source material and secondary source material. The Americans talked about the home, but I ignored it. It just seemed to me a sort of cliche. That what, what in the world were they talking about? And I finally realized that if I was going to take this period seriously, I had to take the home seriously. And I began to realize that the United States, in the United States, Americans did not think of the country as a collection of individuals, that we often frame this as a period of individual rights, a period of individualism. But when you go back to what they wrote and what they said, they thought of the United States as a collection of homes. And by home, they meant something quite specific. A home was going to be a man who would protect um, the household, who would provide for the household, and a woman in a gendered relationship who was in charge of the household. They would then raise children who would become Republican citizens and who would be able to establish what they called a competency, which would enable them to start their own homes. The United States existed to replicate these kinds of Republican homes over and over and over again. The dark side of this is that if you didn't fit into this idea of a home, then pretty much you're going to be excluded from a whole set of rights and even identity as an American. In Reconstruction, it's no accident that the basic battles take place over the black home, whether in fact black men can support and protect the home and black women can maintain a home. Indians can be excluded because Indians do not have proper homes. Chinese become people who are threats to the home. The home becomes what you argue with, and if you fail to claim the home as a social and political terrain in the 19th century, you are pretty much doomed to lose most arguments. So as you said, the home is everywhere in this period, and one of the places where it pops up is in that concept you talked about a couple minutes ago of greater reconstruction in the American West. What was greater reconstruction? Tell us about that. 
Greater Reconstruction simply takes the idea that at the end of the Civil War, um, and here I'm using it a little differently than how Elliot West uses it, at the end of the Civil War, the United States thinks that the basic division of the Republic has been solved. Um, that the decision about whether it's going to be a slave-holding society or a society of free labor is over. So what the goal of the United States is, is to take a free labor north, which the irony is, is changing even as they talk about it, but to take this idea of a free labor north that produced Abraham Lincoln and extend it not only, not only over the south, but over the west. And extending it over the west involves allowing American homes to spread out into Indian country. Indians will have a choice. They can either cede the land and um, allow American homes to develop, and they in turn will be allowed to develop homes of their own in the American model, or they can resist and be crushed. Um, that's the choice that's left open to them. So what you have when you begin to look at the Greater Reconstruction is this extent, the extent to which the United States attempts to extend its free labor home over the entire American continent. Well, I'll back off from the American continent, over the, the continental confines of the United States. Another way that you frame much of the story is around the life of the writer William Dean Howells. Why did you choose him? And uh, what does his life and his sort of intellectual heritage, what does it tell us about American liberalism in the late 19th century? Um, Howells became a critical figure for me, um, but not immediately. I was looking for a narrator. And I thought about Mark Twain, but for a variety of reasons, he really didn't do it. And I kept thinking about House because I had a, a college professor, John DeZikas, um, who was very influential on me. And he had me read House when I was an undergraduate. And I never forgot House. And what I, what I remembered about House were these graphic descriptions, both in his novels and in his essays, about conditions in the United States. He was one of the great American realists, though he's largely forgotten now, at least by um, most, most Americans. So I went back to Howells and found out there's a big run of Howells letters. And Howells, it turns out, knew virtually everybody of any importance and many people of no importance in the 19th century United States. He brings up figures I otherwise would have totally forgotten about. And Howells also is somebody who is in crisis as well as the country is in crisis. He recognizes that the set of ideas that he has, which would be small L liberalism, the idea of small government, that once the Civil War has been won, we should bring the government down to a minimal level, that the, the society will operate largely as a market, and market competition of free labor will, will uh, create a just society in which everyone is largely equal. He realizes that's not what's happening. And so he goes into a kind of political, cultural, and social crisis in which he thinks deeply about the events of the United States and about liberalism. And so what I can do is use him, instead of my dictating and lecturing about what's happening in the United States, I'll let Howells do the talking. And Howells is very, very eloquent, and precisely because he's confused about what's going on, and precisely because he's such a thoughtful man who takes his confusion seriously, insights developed that I don't think would have developed in any other way. You described the years after 1875 or so as years of violence. What happened across the United States in the mid-1870s as Reconstruction wound down a bit and the election of 1876 loomed? All these years are violent. Um, what's changing is the nature of the violence and the location of the violence. Um, the South will remain violent throughout this whole period as Reconstruction gets crushed. 
But what Americans think about in 1875, 1876 is something they did not expect to see happening in the United States, which is class violence, widespread class violence, from the, from the railroad strikes of 1876 through the kinds of bitter industrial battles that will continue on in the 1880s, 1890s, Haymarket and, and, um, and uh, battles around Carnegie and Homestead, all of these things are going to be taking place over the United States. It's going to be not only that, there's going to be ethnic violence, the kind of, of, of riots between the Irish and Protestants in New York City in the 1860s, is the United States became a remarkably violent place, and not on the basis of individual violence so far in the way we might think about it as being just murders or something else. This is organized social violence. It's organized social violence which will rack American cities, rack American communities throughout the rest of the period. And the reason it's so violent is the society is changing, and Americans had not expected the change and really did not think their institutions or feared their institutions might not be capable of coping with these changes. Um, when, in fact, people began to fear that the outcomes were unjust, that elections might be unfair, that the way the society operated was unfair, people began to um, defend their rights in in ways that were shocking to middle class and actually all Americans, so the kind of ways in which they took the law into their own hands, whether it's vigilantism that's going on in the West or this kind of class conflict that's taking place in the East and Midwest. So this, coupled with the continuing violence of Reconstruction, makes this period uh, an era of really uh, horrendous violence. And you described the importance of class-based violence in particular. And one of the most fascinating organizations during this period were the Knights of Labor, who seemed to be everywhere in this book. Why were they so important? And what role did they play in the relentless battles between labor and capital throughout the Gilded Age? Yeah, Knights of Labor actually feared violence. Um, the whole idea of Terence Powderly is he didn't like strikes. Um, and what he was aiming for was a kind of cooperative society. But Terence Powderly never could really control his own organization. The best way to think about the Knights of Labor is they modeled themselves on the kinds of secret societies that were all over the United States in the, in the 19th century. Uh, the Masons, um, you know, the, the Odd Fellows, all the places where when I walk around Pasadena where I'm going to leave this year, I can still see the Masonic Halls, the Odd Fellows Halls. And the Knights of Labor start out as a working class organization which models themselves after these um, prevalent organizations throughout the rest of the society. They're secret rituals, but they have a political aim. Their political aim is to defeat the wage labor system. The great fear of working class Americans in the 19th century is they're going to be permanent wage laborers. And what the Knights promise them is, no, you won't. What we're going to evolve is a cooperative society in which you'll have a share of the enterprise. We're going to evolve. It's going to be much larger scale. It's not going to be individual production anymore. But neither are you going to be um, at the mercy of people who employ you. Um, but Powerly wants to bring this about, not so much politically, though he will be a politician, because the his workers are divided between Republicans and Democrats, but through this educational system which will bring about this kind of cooperative endeavors that will finally replace the capitalism, or capitalism as they now knew it, give an alternate form of capitalism. But his workers are impatient. Um, 
Patterly will only strike when what he sees as an emergency, but the workers see emergencies over and over again. So particularly in the great upheaval in the mid-1880s, workers are going to take over the nights of labor. Um, Powderly cannot keep control of the organization. We're going to go through the general strikes, which will start in Chicago, in St. Louis, um, and we're going to get strikes which begin peacefully, end up violently, um, and throw the whole country into turmoil. It's not going to be the defeat of those strikes is going to be a huge blow to the nights of labor. It's not going to end them, but they're never going to have the same power again. So the odd thing about the Knights of Labor is they are identified with this labor upheaval and they are central to it, but it was never their goal to try to institute general strikes or to overthrow um, capitalism through strikes. Um, they opposed anarchists in many ways. They opposed socialists, though some of them were socialists. They be can become, for many people, a very confused and confusing organization, but they're really essential to the period. Another um, person that you describe as pretty essential to understanding the period who I didn't know much about before reading your book was Henry George. Can you tell us about him and why he was important? Yeah. Henry George is one of the great forgotten intellectuals of the 19th century. Um, Henry George was probably the most prominent, what we would now call public intellectual of the period. Um, Henry George would write best-selling books. Um, and these, these books are, when you go back and, and read them, um, are really quite difficult. They really are quite demanding of the readers. And one of the things that looking at George um, allowed me to see was how seriously Americans of this period really took very, very difficult um, ideas. So that in Progress and Poverty, he gives them an account of how economics works. And what we've done with George is we've remembered his solution, his single tax. But what we forget is the single tax was a solution that's put on a really interesting analysis of American society. Because the basic question he asks is how is it that in a society with so much technical progress, in which there are signs of the ability to produce goods on a scale that we have never seen before, that we see all around us these signs of great poverty? Why is it in a society which, in fact, says that market competition is supposed to increase equality, we're seeing greater and greater inequality? So what George attempts to do is answer that question. In answering the question, he, too, will start with liberal roots and move much more towards a kind of American socialism, which is a, <clears throat> a socialism which is very different from European socialism, and that George will say that we can solve all the problems with the single tax. And the single tax probably wouldn't have worked, though it's not as stupid as people sometimes say it was, but we tend to ignore George because we concentrate on the single tax instead of going back to looking at his larger analysis. And people in the 19th century really did concentrate on that larger analysis. And when he runs for mayor of New York, it is going to be an election which um, terrifies both Republicans and Democrats, that George seems on the verge of uniting a whole set of disparate groups largely along class lines, and there is going to be um, a kind of horror that will grip both political parties. I also particularly enjoyed reading your, uh, your coverage and your analysis of the health and environmental crises that either emerged or got worse in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s. Um, what were American cities like in this period, and how did American bodies change alongside them? And 
That environmental story is one of the hidden stories of the 19th century. And I, and I should explain that I came to it because I had a problem that I could not solve with the existing literature. One of the questions that constantly comes up is that people say, okay, so industrialization certainly caused some harm. It certainly is going to pollute the environment. It certainly is going to cause death in industry. It certainly is going to degrade some housing conditions and other things. But on the whole, aren't people living better than they were before the Industrial Revolution? Aren't they getting richer? Don't they have more material things? Answering that question is not that easy. Economists try to calculate real wages, and quite frankly, I found that some of the most unconvincing literature I've, I've ever read. It's both contradictory, and in fact, it's based on a series of surmises that the further out you go, the more tenuous the logic becomes. But economists have also, I think, recognizing the limits of trying to calculate uh, these kinds of real wages in a place where you don't have much um, economic statistics to go on, have begun to look for other measures, look at surrogates, which can de detail whether people are living better or living worse. And one of the things they started to measure was how long do they live? How big are they in terms of how tall are they? How are infant death rates? And what I found in the 19th century, those things go down. Um, you know, Americans are getting shorter, not taller. And this is native-born Americans as well as immigrants. Um, they're living less long than they had at the beginning of the century. Um, and their children are dying in really quite enormous numbers. It's really hard to say that conditions of life are getting better when these things are happening. Well, how do you begin to explain that? The early part of the 19th century, the explanation is pretty easy. Um, it's tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is the great killer of the 19th century. And it will continue to kill in the late 19th century, but the death rates from tuberculosis are going down. So tuberculosis can only explain part of it. And until the turnaround in the 1890s, we have to look elsewhere. And the best explanation right now, you know, scholars are still working on this to figure out what went on, is it's largely going to be a crisis of public health. It's going to be a crisis of bad water. Um, waterborne diseases, epidemic diseases that can come through tight quarters in cities. And these are the kinds of things which are going to contribute to um, the, the real fall in American well-being during this period. And I term this an environmental crisis, which it really is. We usually think about environmental crisis in this period as the slaughter of the buffalo, all these other kinds of things that are happening. But the, another sign of what is happening is the decline in human well-being. And I would argue that the late 19th century is, in many ways, the first sustained environmental crisis in American history. And it's one that will be solved, by and large, by the early 20th century, but it isn't being solved until the 1890s. Let's focus back in on the West for a minute. And um, you did a very good job in the book of uh, describing the connection between a lot of the class conflict that we talked about earlier and Sinophobia, particularly in the West. Can you explain for our listeners the connection between these two ideas, these two concepts? You know, if you look at um, the late 19th century United States, it's going to be a period of considerable racism. And everybody, nobody is surprised that this falls down on African Americans. And nobody is that surprised that it falls down on Indian peoples. But um, the question is, well, what's up with the Chinese? And the Chinese become arguably the most hated group in the American West. And they're hated 
by and large, because they seem to be a threat to the home. Um, when they portray Chinese, I see them as uniformly single men. There are men who cannot sustain homes and do not attempt to sustain homes. The few Chinese in the country they portray as prostitutes, and Chinese prostitution was quite real. So first of all, these are people who exist outside the home. The second thing they do with them is they not only exist outside the home, they threaten white working class homes. The Chinese, because they will work for less than white workers, will drive down wages so that white workers cannot sustain homes. Once white men cannot sustain homes, they cease to be, in the eyes of many working class whites, both immigrant and native born, um, they cease to be men. That their daughters have to go to work, their wives have to go to work, and that the home itself will begin to fall apart. Their children, they say, um, seeing that they cannot find real decent working class jobs, resort to crime, and the whole society begins to go downhill, and it's because of this partnership, as they see it, between the Chinese and large corporations. It's large corporations don't care what happens to the American Republic. They'll simply employ Chinese because they make more money that way. And so what you have is the Chinese and particularly railroads, but other corporations become these dual symbols of this threat to a working class free labor republic. And the Chinese um, will pay the price. All of this, of course, is not true, but it becomes something which is argued about and then agreed to by most Americans, Republicans, as well as Democrats. Toward the latter part of the period covered by the book, um, in kind of the latter half of the book, you say at one point that the changes in the American economy that are going on in the 1880s and beginning in, of the 1890s, that they could be traced through the evolution of the word Coke, which I thought was a, an especially striking analogy. Can you walk us through those changes and how the word Coke is sort of emblematic of them? Sure. I mean, the word Coke, when Americans use it in the, in the present day, refers to a drug. I mean, it refers to cocaine. And it's not that that derivation, that meaning, is not present in the 19th century. But there are two kinds of Coke in the 19th century. There's the kind of Coke that will go into Coca-Cola, um, which initially con contained um, a dose of cocaine. Not a very big one, but there's cocaine in it. But my interest in Coke and cocaine and Coca-Cola is that it's the first great American consumer product, which you aim it at a mass consumer. You aim it at selling a lot of it for very little. It's not a necessity, but it's something that people can become addicted to, not necessarily through the Coke part, but later on through the sugar part. And so it becomes this, this, this kind of drug which can be... Um, used in the same way tobacco will be and other consumer products at the same time to get a clientele which depends on it, which will use it regularly, will spend only small amounts on an individual portion, but overall pay large amounts. Furthermore, you organize the industry in a way in which the people producing the product don't have to put very much money into it. They sell Coke syrup. Most of the marketing, most of the actual production of the drink goes to local distributors. So you begin to get this hierarchical distribution network in which the profits will not flow totally to the top, but at the top, that's where most of the products will end up. And it's about advertising, it's about distribution, it's about getting uh, a customer base. And so Coca-Cola, beckons towards the modern economy in that way. But the other Coke is going to be Coke that comes from coal, and it's used in smelting steel. 
and essentially the steel industry becomes the first heavy industry of the United States. You can't produce steel without coke, you can't produce coke without coal, and coal mining and steel making becomes the backbone of the American industrial economy. And once you have that in place, um, other industries are built upon it. The steel industry, until relatively late, sells virtually everything it produces to railroads, steel rails, which allows goods to be distributed across the United States much more efficiently than they had been before. So coke leads back to coal mines in one direction, it leads out to railroads and distribution in another. And so if you use the word coke, you're beginning to see both sectors of the American economy, both this industrial producer goods sector and the consumer goods sector emerging out of the single word. And at the same time, you put the section about this word coke kind of in contrast to uh, Andrew Carnegie and his idea of the the, the gospel of wealth. And you say that his idea was sort of uh, looking more backwards into the past. Can you talk a little bit about Andrew Carnegie and his beliefs about the American economy around the same time period? Yeah, I mean, Carnegie is um, an, an interesting figure. And I think he's a figure who uh, is used in a lot of very wrong ways in the in the 21st century, particularly around philanthropy. But what Carnegie recognizes is is that um, the economy is changing. He has no doubts about that. And he himself is somebody who recognizes that if you want to benefit from this economy, you need two things. First of all, you need connections. You need friends, as it was used in the 19th century. And Carnegie, who gets his rise through his association with Tom Scott and the Pennsylvania Railroad, always has friends. He has key friends who will let him in on deals which will allow him to begin to build his fortune. He's an able man, but he would be the last one to deny that he would not have begun his rise without his friends in the Pennsylvania Railroad. But Carnegie knows you need more than friends. Carnegie doesn't enter steel until he realizes he's going to need government support. He cannot compete with British steelmakers. If it's going to be a flat-out economic battle, the Americans are going to lose every time. So what they do is create a tariff barrier. And once you create a tariff barrier, then Carnegie realizes that you can begin to make a great deal of money making steel. And he's an able man. There's no denying it. So once he has this, these basic structures set up, he will prove to be more able than other steelmakers. He will be ruthless in driving down costs, including labor costs, and he will be ruthless in making sure that he continues to get political protection, both from his workers and from foreign competitors. So Carnegie is somebody who, who sees the world as largely being composed of friends and favors and government favors, but he presents it as simply a world in which individual ability um, decides everything. And there could be nothing more false than an individualism based on Carnegie, because Carnegie's whole success is based on government, and it's going to be based on his association with high-ranking friends. You called the third section of this book, The Crisis Arrives. And considering that between the Civil War and the beginning of the 20th century can seem like one continuous period of, of crisis, can you tell us what happened at the end of the 1880s and the beginning of the 1890s that made the end of the century so explosive? By the 1880s, a series of things that people had feared in the um, years following the Civil War had already taken place. Um, first of all, the United States had become an industrial nation which is going to be based on wage labor. There is no 
doubt that that is going to be the future of the country. So while people thought they could have all these other alternative capitalisms where wage labor wouldn't be the dominant form of production, um, any serious person in the 1880s, 1890s recognizes that at least for the long term, this is going to be um, the condition of the United States. So that battle has been lost. The second thing is that the United States is going to be this sort of homogeneous country, this country of homogeneous citizenship in which everyone will have equal rights, equal status before the federal government, which will protect those rights, has begun to fall apart. Um, clearly, the failure of Reconstruction and the political battles taking place in the North, the kinds of attempts at dis disenfranchisement, particularly among immigrants and others, these are taking place. So the idea of a homogeneous citizenship has been thrown into question. Secondly, Americans begin to get nostalgic for a country which they saw as well before the Civil War. Certainly we had our differences and there was immigration, but it was largely a Protestant country. And they imagine it, they forget the sort of huge division which led to the Civil War where we all agreed on basic values. But in the late 19th century, Americans don't agree on basic values. They're Catholics, they're Jews, they're Protestants, many versions of Protestants were divided by race. And that the reality is set in that many Americans, and it's been true many times in our history, really don't like each other very much. And yet at the same time, they're going to have to get along. They're going to have to live in this, in this country. And finally is going to be class, the growing inequity, that the United States was always seen as this place that's going to be different from Europe. We're not going to have the dangerous classes, the very rich and the very poor. But by the 1880s and 1890s, we've got them. We have the very rich, people of astonishing wealth, an unimaginable wealth for earlier Americans. And we've got very poor, people who seem to be previously to have existed only in European society. But now they're in the United States. And with the coming of the Depression, what was called the Great Depression before the Depression of the 1930s, all of these things seem to come together. That there's a political crisis, the government seems incapable of dealing with the, the kinds of problems the country faces. There's an economic crisis, we're in the midst of depression. There are going to be these bitter strikes, which is going to be fighting in the streets. There's going to be this, this inability to even agree on what it is to be an American. The home, the great unifying symbol is seen everywhere, is under threat. And this becomes the crisis, the crisis which many people, and they were, they were in hindsight wrong, but at the time there was reason they believed these things. We're not sure that the United States was going to come out of this intact, um, that it looked like that we were about to enter into another kind of civil war, this one based on class or religion, um, rather than a fight over slavery. And finally, you both begin and end the book with Abraham Lincoln. How had Lincoln as an idea changed in the three decades after his death, and what did he represent for Americans in 1896? Well, you know, Lincoln at the beginning represented what the country was supposed to become. You know, so at one point, this Springfield was a, this kind of Nazareth of the nation. It's, it's the place that produces Lincoln. Um, and it's a place that all of America is going to try to replicate. That the idea of Reconstruction, the greater Reconstruction had worked, the United States would have been a collection of Springfield. Um, that doesn't happen. The world Lincoln stood for was already vanishing even as it became idealized in the greater Reconstruction. But Lincoln, on the other hand, is the person who had saved the Union, uh, not single-handedly, of course, but he's the one who mythically takes credit for saving the Union, and Lincoln becomes the ideal which will never go away of what American Republic aspires to. 
But the question becomes for people like Jane Addams in Chicago is, well, how do you place Lincoln in the Chicago in the 1890s? How do you take Lincoln's values, free labor values, and make them still seem alive in a world which is so different from the one that Lincoln knew? And this becomes the kind of challenge. Americans begin to fight over Lincoln. Lincoln becomes a symbol that will never go away. If you, the two ways I use them is both the statue of Lincoln in in, um, in Lincoln Park in Chicago, but also Lincoln the penny. You know, it was carried around in every American pocket by the early 20th century. The idea is is that we somehow need to find in this new society, a society so different from Lincoln's small town America, um, a place that can sustain basic Republican values. It's not that they reach a solution to that, but it becomes a question that I don't think ever goes away in American history. Um, it's why Lincoln has such resonance. Um, everything else changes, but people are unwilling to throw away Lincoln at his most eloquent, Lincoln's statement of what the country should be and what the country should, should become. He's an incredibly complicated man, but I don't think there's any figure more central to American history. Well, Richard, now that you've gone ahead and finished a 900-page book, um, I'd like to ask the traditional final question for uh, the New Books Network, which is, what are you working on next? What's next on your docket? Um, actually, I'm, I'm at the Huntington Library, and I'm on leave this year, and before you called, I was, I was working on it. What I'm working on is what's going to be a very peculiar book. I'm doing it with my son, Jesse, who's a photographer, and it comes out of a bet we made, and the bet was... Um, he said that each photograph, that any time a photographer takes a photograph, it just captures an instant, that the world changes after the figurative um, shutter clicks, and it was different before the um, shutter clicked, and that this is just this fragment in time, it's isolated. I said, that's true in a sense, but what's also true is that everything in that photograph, particular landscape photograph, existed for a long time before you clicked the shutter. And that you can take that photograph and begin to read it backwards and begin to see a history. So the bet was, I bet that taking a series of photographs that he took, in which he would choose, they're not going to be illustrations, they're going to be the thing that starts the book, I could write a history of California. So we selected five places in California, and um, he took the photographs, and then we go back and forth a lot. But I begin to do research, all of which springs initially from a photograph. It can range far afield from that photograph, but everything starts with trying to explain something in that photograph, giving it a history, and then connecting those particular little snippets into a larger mosaic, a history of California. So we'll see how it turns out. It's a lot of fun, um, and I'm enjoying it, but that's, um, it's also quite, quite challenging. I, as a historian, I try not to repeat myself and not to do the same thing twice. Um, it keeps me interested, and, and this is one of the more interesting and challenging tasks I've undertaken. Yeah, that sounds like a very fun project, actually. I was smiling over here just listening to it. It sounds like a good time. Yeah. And I really enjoyed reading this book as well. So, again, thank you for, for sharing it with us. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed reading it because it's long and it can be daunting, but I put a lot of work into <laughs> making it um, readable. And it shows. Richard White is the Margaret Byrne Professor of American History at Stanford University and the author of The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, 1865 to 1890, which is the latest edition in the Oxford History of the United States series and was published this year. Richard, thanks for talking to us today. It's been my pleasure, Steve. Thank you. 